in the last of a six-week series called Eternal Endeavors today. So if you're new to the church, uh, sometimes we take a book of the Bible, sometimes we're taking topics, sometimes we're taking series. And uh, in this series, Eternal Endeavors, we've been highlighting the fact that our lives are, are wrapped up in eternity, especially as God comes inside of us through Jesus Christ. Uh, as many as receive him to them, he gives new power to live like and become sons and daughters of Almighty God. A, a whole transformation begins to happen on the inside. That's eternal in nature because God is eternal. We are finite. These bodies, as I just referenced, they're, they're called tents. The, that's a representation of something that's not permanent. A house is permanent, more permanent, a, t- a tent is not. So eternal and then endeavors. Endeavors simply means that which you're pressing towards, that's what you're aiming towards, that's what you're working towards. We are all endeavoring in this life to accomplish things. We work at it in so many fashions and ways. And we've been looking together how these two words come together to, to allow us to see many spectrums. You can go back, click, it doesn't cost you a penny, go online, pick up what you've missed. Um, but we've covered as much as uh, how to live a, an undivided life and, and how you can live a, a whole life. And, Instead of being distracted, we, we've talked a lot last week about the suffering that is part of this world, but how do we overcome that, and what is the approach to that? And, uh, and today I want to wrap up by giving you a subtitle uh, today in Eternal Endeavors, but Chosen to Deliver. Each one of us are chosen to deliver, and before I get into the main text, let me ask you a few questions here this morning. Why do people of faith... This is historically true in every generation from the beginning of recorded time. Why do people of faith overwhelmingly go into troubled areas of suffering to help? It's consistent. You can read about it. We won't go through and pull out narrative after narrative, but it's consistent over a long period of time. Well-documented, long-term study that was done maybe about eight or ten years ago completed. One of many you can look up yourself. But it was researching people who make the choice, not who are voluntold, not who are sent by life circumstances, but actually people who choose to live in the most challenging regions of the world. And this study looked at people who were choosing to go to places where pain, suffering, uh, common topic right now, hot topic, contagion, you know, diseases uh, that you'd be susceptible to, even persecution was, was readily prevalent. This study found that the overwhelming majority, over 95% of the people uh, on an ongoing basis that choose to serve were religious people. Now, let me stop. Not, not necessarily Christian people, although the majority of that majority were, but God-fearing religious people from their respective religions and journeys in life. Over 95%. The people that would choose to send themselves, choose to walk into areas of potential uh, unrest, of potential harm, uh, of potential uh, shortages of things that you and I enjoy today. So out of that, finding that these were people of faith, some faith, The question in the research then led to the next question. What gives a religious person the inner ability to choose, to endure, to face, and to assist suffering people? Simultaneously, 
as well what gives religious people the ability to understand that suffering in and of itself is part of this whole life. We talked a little bit about that last week, how, you know, in the world, I mean, we have fun and joy and happiness and, and pleasure and, and just, just amazing times. And I, for one, am on an ongoing basis just in awe, and I remind God, thank you. Thank you for this or thank you for that because uh, I, I know I don't deserve it, but it's there. And, you know, we'll walk outside today in, in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Today is beautifully sunny unless something's changed in the last four hours. Um, gorgeous day, gorgeous couple of days in a row. And, and you just look up and you think, man, this is just amazing. But what gives these people this inner ability to do that? And the answer is this. People of faith believe and discover. It's both. It's, it's just not a naive believing, but you discover God is in control and will ultimately see you through. Just like I just shared a few moments ago. In the past six weeks, as I've talked about, somebody in our church had said, Pastor Ray, we've been at it a long time, and uh, we haven't lost faith, but you know, we're people of faith. We've seen God move. We've seen God heal. We've seen God deliver. But this man in our church, Jim Smith, an elder in our church, said, Pastor Ray, we need a miracle. And the miracle that was received was that Almighty God came and received his wife unto himself. And he knows. And, and when it happens, he knows. He's the one that's speaking the most. I know where she is. I know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I know that this suffering uh, wasn't, it didn't work out the way I wanted it, but uh, you know, she got to live 79 years. We've had 57 years of, of marriage. We've got beautiful kids. We have grandchildren. Our life has been royally blessed. And yet what? He has to go back and discover now something brand new in his life, that the loss of his soulmate, the loss of the, the beloved, one of them, in, unless you were in some sort of accident where you both went at the same time, somebody's going before somebody, even for people that have been married almost 60 years. And it's a whole new journey. It's a whole new time. But he has believed in God, and he is also now discovering this fact. It's going to be different. It's not what I wanted but my trust and my hope is in God. Conversely, what we talked about uh, recently is people of a secular belief system. What do you mean by that? Well, let me go back. In the 1960s, the United States government passed a, a law naming secular humanism as the religion of the United States of America. You can look it up yourself. I mentioned to you last week, I, I naysayed that when I, when I heard about it. Uh, in the 70s, after coming to faith, I was, uh, you know, after my freshman year in college, I, I wasn't uh, macro understanding uh, of, of world affairs and, and the politics of our government. And I, I just naysayed it, meaning big, big deal, secular human, whatever, what is that, big deal. Well, now it's inculcates and it has penetrated and it has permeated so much of all of our thinking are, are, are that, that in education from the very beginning to the very end, it's a controlling, ongoing thing, and, and essentially secular humanism, it means that, that we are God, the people, not him, not, not a God, not some God, but, but we, we, we control our own destiny, and outside of us, nothing else really happens. So for the people with a secular belief system, if you really believe that, if you choose that, you don't have the truth of Jesus Christ, the word of God being incorporated within you. If you believe that system, 
and teach we're all here alone when these people have uh, uh, a trouble or, or trauma or loss in life, it's proven that they have a deeper level of despair. Why? Because their hope is only merely horizontal. It's, it's us, and this is it. There is no some other day. But we realize and we know that this isn't it, that this isn't the earth that God created the way it was supposed to be. There will be a new heaven and a new earth according to the scripture, one that God said a fully restored earth, one that we can only imagine and dream about. But when Adam and Eve made a choice because God didn't want robots, he created us with a, a conscience but also with a free will. And, and choose you this day whom you will serve. And they, Eve was deceived, Adam chose, they, they chose a secular humanistic view, something that I want more than what God has already given me. The lawlessness is reaching for something outside of what God has already given you. And, and she reached outside saying, I want something. The only thing, in fact, that God said, you don't, don't partake of that fruit of that tree. Everything else you see is yours. Enjoy. Have an awesome time. And then we know the rest of the story as sin came and it crept. And therefore, now we live in a world with amazing joy. And yet simultaneously, we are called and chosen by God to be deliverers, people that will stand against injustice and walk his way out. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter said, here's what he was talking about to us, the fulfillment of a promise to the Hebrew culture as a whole, but you are a chosen people or generation. We, the church is a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Holy here means Kodesh is... It's, it means separated unto. We've been separated by God as we come into faith and, and in his family. And, and he says, you're a holy nation, a people belonging to God so that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness of misunderstanding, darkness of our former lifestyles, into his wonderful light. And then he says, once you are not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We pick up the story. The introduction of Moses happened in the first 11 verses in Exodus chapter 2. Moses is a baby born as, as a, a Jewish, a Hebrew, an Israelite. He's born in a time when babies are being slaughtered. An edict has gone out from the number one guy in the world, the most powerful guy, Pharaoh. And he said, these Hebrews, are, they're, they're just multiplying. There's so many of them. The scripture says he was afraid of them. So he said, kill, kill these uh, firstborn baby males. And so it was, it was at that time that this happens and Moses' parents uh, made a decision, the Bible says. They feared God more than they feared the government. And rather than choose to bring their child in to be killed, they made a little ark. It was made and formed in fashion like Noah's giant ark, a little teeny basket, and it was pitched inside and out. That means it was covered with a tar-like substance just like Noah's was to keep water from coming in. And, and erroneously, people say he was let out down the river and by providence turned in 
to a reed bed. No, no, no. The Bible says they brought him down the river and they placed Moses in a reed bed where the, the Hebrew women, Pharaoh's family, would come and bathe. And sure enough, he, uh, Pharaoh's daughter spots first this little wicker basket over here and he, she sends over one of her servants who brings it back and says, oh, look, there's one of the Hebrew child, children in there. Something miraculously in the peradventure of God happens. And she feels compassion for this child. She knows daddy is killing every male firstborn that there is. And she says, hey, we're going to bring him in. See if you can go find someone to nurse her. And then, of course, the story is, uh, Moses' sister comes up. Hey, do you want me to get one of the Hebrew women? Sure. She goes back, and who nurses and raises Moses in the house of God, in the house of Pharaoh, rather, but Jacobed, his real mother. So raises him, and, and Moses is moving up. He's, he's no longer a child. All that happened in the first 10 verses of this chapter. Now we go to verse 11. Turning point, a lot of years have gone by, and we start here. In verse 11, one day after Moses had what? Grown up. He's, he's a grown up now. He, he's not a child. He's not a baby. We've covered that story. He went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He's Hebrew. He's raised in an Egyptian house. The Hebrews have been slaves for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Moses is born into this time where his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, Possibly his great-great-great-grandfather were all born as slaves. He sees an Egyptian where he lives in the Egyptian palace, beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian. He hid him in the sand. The next day he went out, and there's another encounter. He sees two Hebrews fighting. Now there's not an Egyptian and a, and a Jew. There's two Hebrews together. And they're fighting. This time, rather than killing, he asks the one in the wrong. He says, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, 